You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. I have the honor of working for 7,900 young people and young scholars. Right, um, and my work involves supporting them, helping to develop them so they can be leaders today, but also leaders tomorrow. Um, and I had the honor to serve on the One Book Selection Committee on behalf of city schools in recognizing this amazing literary writer, energizer, great person, and leader today, Miss Nick Stone. And I'll be moderating, but this is your show, this is your platform, and I know you all came to hear her speak and hear your voices heard, so I'm gonna do minimum talking and allow her to do her part, so. I mean, first of all, I'm jealous. Have you seen this guy's eyelashes? <laughs> I have to spend $40 on good mascara to get my eyelashes to look like yours, and that just feels wildly unfair. Um, but I'm very excited to be here in Baltimore, even though this table is hiding my tutu. Um, I, it's really cool to be with you guys and you know when I found out that Dear Martin had been chosen for Baltimore One Book I was like what? Get out of here. Like I just didn't, I don't know, like I did, I wrote, a, I wrote a book for my sons. I have two sons, I have a six year old and a two and a half year old and this is a book that I wrote for them uh, for you know they're going to hit a point where they need a little bit of guidance when it comes to navigating what can be a bit of a tumultuous place um so for it to have like grown tentacles and rooted itself in so many places has been really something okay. well you just knocked off three of my questions well there it is <laughs> that's just how energy is going to flow here i was going to actually exactly start by asking you how have your experience been in baltimore thus far dude baltimore is so okay my one issue with Baltimore is it's so cold. What is that? Like, I'm from Georgia, and I'm like, we don't do this. Like, if it gets this cold in Georgia, I'm not leaving my house. But, like, it's always this. In the wintertime, it's, like, always this cold here, and I can't. But other than that, there's such a, a texture. So I've been in cities across the United States, and there's something very interesting about kind of, like, the northeastern states, but this one is definitely the most richly textured that I've been in. Um, it doesn't have that kind of like old snootiness that you see in places like Boston and Philadelphia, um, and it also doesn't have that weird divisive tension that you see in DC. So I'm like, oh, I like Baltimore. I like this place minus the negative 5,000 degrees. <laughs> Wonderful. Welcome to Baltimore. Thank you. Um, you, you. You mentioned that you were inspired to write this book because of your two sons. When did the idea, the vision begin for you to spark to become an author first? So I, it took me a while. I apparently in eighth grade, told my best friend Alex. Um, so my second book, Odd One Out, there's a character in that book named Ray. Alex is kind of the inspiration for Ray. Okay. But she tells me that when I was, ooh, a baby. <laughs> <laughs> a little baby. 
years. <laughs> um, she tells me that when we were in eighth grade, I told her that I intended to become a New York Times bestseller. I wasn't writing no books, so how I intended to do that, I'm not sure, and it took another 16 years before I got started. But a lot of that had to do with like the stuff, I'm gonna say stuff and be nice, the stuff that we had to read in school. Um, four years of high school, I met three African-American characters in our required reading books. One was um, kind of a hunchback, sweet guy, big dreams, couldn't do anything about them. That was Crooks from Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. The second was an escaped slave, headed up a river with a little white boy who I couldn't understand half the time because he was written in vernacular. Uh, that was Jim from The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And the third was a man falsely accused of this heinous crime who eventually loses his life despite being innocent. And that was Tom Robinson from To Kill a Mockingbird. And that was it. I didn't mean no other black people. Tell me about those narratives. Right? I mean, and like, so not only were they these very sad stories, they also weren't women, you know? Like, I didn't, I didn't see black women in books or writing books until, like, I discovered Toni Morrison my senior year. But, like, bro, Toni Morrison is Toni Morrison. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like, oh, I'm, I can be like her. Like, I knew for a fact there is no point in my life where I will write a paragraph that is three pages long. Like, that's just <laughs> not something that I am capable of doing. Yeah. So while, and then I, I read The Color Purple also my senior year of high school. But the thing about... Toni Morrison's work, Alice Walker's work, Zora Neale Hurston's work, Maya Angelou's work, they were writing about characters that I can only identify with in skin tone. So like I couldn't, like, I didn't escape from slavery and kill my toddler so she wouldn't have to be enslaved. You know, like, like there were things, there are things in their work that I just couldn't, like, couldn't identify with. Um, so not seeing, not only not seeing people like me in books, but not seeing writers who look like me writing stuff that I can engage with um, kind of on a really personal level, it made me think I couldn't write, you know? Um, I remember in fifth grade, my highest aspiration was to be an astronaut, and that was 100% because of this image that will exist in my soul for the rest of my life of Mae Jemison in her orange jumpsuit. Y'all all know what I'm talking about, right? The helmet she has tucked under her arm is as big as her upper body. She got her little fro, this beautiful brown woman. Like, I knew for a fact when I saw that picture that I could be an astronaut. I didn't see images of writers, though. I didn't see images of writers who I could identify with. Uh, so it took me a while to start. What changed everything, interestingly enough, uh, was a book series written by a white girl, and I say girl because she was like 19 or 20 when these books were published, but the Divergent series by Veronica Roth. Christina, in that, in that series, she was the first person that I ever saw in a book, a contemporary book, or like a book kind of written in the modern day, who was described as being brown-skinned. She was sassy. She was basically me, and it was the first time in my entire life that I had picked up a book and been like, yo, that's me, I want to be her if they make a movie. Like, I had never had that experience before. And I was like 27. I was like 26 or 27. It was also the first book series where the black character actually survived the whole thing. Like a horror film. Yo, I was like, like, what? Yeah, right, you think about the Hunger Games, right? Like, Hunger Games had three major black characters. Ain't none of them survived the whole series. Two of them got taken out in the first book. (laughs) So so, uh, Divergent taught me that black people can survive an apocalypse 
if black people can survive an apocalypse, your girl can write a book. <laughs> so I was 28 when I got started. Wonderful. And you said this to your friend. I said, well, yeah, when I was 13. And what's interesting, I completely forgot about it until, like, I think a week, the week that I made the bestseller list, she called me. And she's like, yo, you did it. And I was like, I did what? She's like, you don't remember in eighth grade when you told me you were going to be a New York Times bestseller? And I was like, no, but cool. (laughs) I'll take it. Um, Yeah. You seem to have those moments a lot. Yeah. Right? So we have to say a little Space of transparency. Please. I, I slid into her DM. Attempted to, we should say. Attempted to slide into her DM about March. And the young people know what DM is, right? Direct message on social media. And we were starting this initiative at City Schools called Youth Up Next, where we promote student literacy, leadership, and wholeness through a lens of a youthful perspective. And I'm identifying all these Baltimore published authors to, that's going to donate over 500 books that we give away as we do pop-ups. In addition, we're, the, the planning stages of the One Book Baltimore is taking place, and she's streaming down my timeline. I'm like, who is this young lady? Who is this poet? Who seems to be cool, relatable? How can I get in contact with her? So I slide in her DM. It, step, it stayed on unread. Right? Well, young people, you know, you just know when you're, it's not red, right? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. when it's open, it gives you a notification. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, who? Maybe she's just too busy. About a week or so ago, Miss Angela Matthews uh, passes, reposts the flyer to promote tonight's event. And I guess I finally made it to your timeline. Yes, exactly. And so I reach out to him and I'm like, yep, yeah. oh, there's a message here. <laughs> and because I totally missed it completely missed it. And so when I reached back, like, I mean, I'm sliding to your DMs. You just lead into mine. Now we crashing on the slide. So, and, and it was, but it was cool though. It was cool kind of seeing this come full circle in a way. Agreed. What, once, did you imagine your book being received and taken off as it has been? Oh, no way. And how does that make you feel? Um, I ignore it for the most part so I can focus on like, continuing to write books because I think that if I think about it too much it would get into my head and just like mess me up um so like I'm like oh good people like this one let me go ahead and write the third one like I just keep it moving my editor is she still here Phoebe Phoebe. hi Phoebe so this is my editor who's familiar with Walter Dean Myers so she edited Walter D. Myers for 20 years, right? So when she, when, when we submitted stuff to her and like I get this message back that's like, oh, I edited Walter, and I'm like, of course I know who you are. Like I've been following you for who knows how long, like from the moment I decided I wanted to get published. And so we went back and forth on Dear Martin quite a bit, but she can tell you that like the minute I turn something in and it goes to copy edits, I'm on to the next thing. Like I don't have, like I just want to continue to create content for my young readers, you know? We don't get a whole lot. And I think that it's important, once you start making readers, because honestly that has been the coolest part of this whole thing, is the number of kids I get who slide into my DMs and tell me, Yo, miss, I ain't never read a book before in my life, but, like, this is the best thing I've ever seen, you know? Like, I get so many of those messages where you have these kids who have never read a book before because they were never able to connect with any of the books they were told they had to read. They come in and they say, yo, when's the next one coming out? 
And I'm like, well, crap, I gotta write it. Like, let me hurry up and get the next thing out so that they keep reading. Um, so I don't even, I try not to even think about it. Got it. So now my question is twofold based off of your response. Um, what is your inspiration to continue writing after such a grand success? And me speaking with Miss Phoebe, dynamic person, her energy, she just recommended like 15 books for my, my uh, six-month-year-old son. So my Christmas <laughs> list is on like lit right now. Uh, so it's a pleasure meeting her. Lit, intended. Yeah, lit, lit. Wow. Connect, I like that. We work well together. Um, she told me of the story when she first got your first draft of a piece of writing that mm-hmm. you had. And she identified you as a um, writing style that was similar and, and uh, very remarkable, similar to Walter D. Myers, mm-hmm. right? What was your first piece of writing? Did you start with the intent of writing the storyline and the narratives and these characters that are here in the Dear Martin book? Mm-hmm. Did they have were there ever a transition or was this a free flowing process where you're like it's clicking and it's coming together? Oh, I ain't never had it happen where it clicks and comes together. Um, so Dear Martin's my third book. The first one Phoebe has never and will never ever see. <laughs> it is a raging dumpster fire of trash. Like it's and I think that for me it was important to have that first novel, like in quotes. Like if you there are a lot of writers, you'll talk to a lot of writers and they'll tell you. The first book that they wrote was not and will never be published. Um, Jody Pico is one of my mentors, and she's the one who told me very early on when I was working on that first book, don't expect this one to go anywhere. And she just like straight up, and she's real good at just punching me right in the stomach to make sure I'm understanding how things work in this industry. Um, but she was right, you know? So the second book I wrote featured a, a young African-American girl, um, that's such a redundant statement, and I say a young African-American girl. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. if she's a girl. She's young. Anyway, um, an African-American girl living with bipolar disorder. And while that is definitely still a, toy, a story that needs to be told, it just wasn't the right time for it. Um, so Dear Martin was the third novel. And it's like, as I... The further along I got in my writing journey, so the closer I got to kind of my own experience and the more willing I was to kind of really jump out there and do something that would probably be a little controversial, if not a lot. Uh, I was nervous about, I was nervous about Dear Martin largely because my father was a police officer for the first 23 years of my life. So knowing that I was gonna write this story that took a real deep dive into police violence and police brutality, I was nervous about writing that book. But my dad wound up being kind of my biggest supporter. Um, So it did, it took me a minute to get to the heart of like me and my writing, Mm -hmm. but I'm like there now. So now I'm like, okay, now now what am I gonna do next? What am I gonna do next? How do I push the envelope further and further and further? Got it. I like making people mad. I hope everybody in this room got real pissed off at some point while reading Dear Martin, because otherwise I didn't do my job. What I got from it, um, it just struck a chord of emotion because it was so relatable to my upbringing and plenty of my peers and probably the common young African-American boy. Mm -hmm. I've done it, right? But it, (laughs) it, it made me sit there and say, you captured a story that's all too well lived. Mm-hmm. but it's not often received and respected. 
and protect it. One, mm-hmm. right? Um, and when you said this, that your second novel was about a young lady, the third novel was about a young man, mm-hmm. right? And how it was timely. I remember when I spoke to Miss Latrice Grant, and we were of a uh, Baltimore ceasefire who does amazing work and a, a, a dynamic partner with the one book selection. Thank you for help, helping save the city of Baltimore, right? And, and doing your work every day. You're a soldier and a warrior. Uh, we appreciate you. But when I when I spoke of this at Hollenberg Academy, uh, the young people in the site lead, Miss Sydney Thomas, they read it and you met them to, again today. Mm-hmm. They were reading your book and watching the film, The Hate You Give. And we was talking about the book, Dear Martin, and I was like, uh, this book, it's like black Twitter streaming down your timeline that would just make everything that's socially conscious a trending topic, right? And it was like, how did you capture this? Because it was like, as you're reading the chapters, you turn on the news and those exact things were still happening. And it was like, how can it be something so timeless but still timely in its true essence? Where did you get this from? It was it. How did you do it? And then from a lens as a as a, as a woman that can tell the story of a young black man so direct and accurate. And mm-hmm. I keep getting hit not from my young brother right here, so I know I'm, I'm speaking to something. Right? <laughs> Yo, what's wild? I wrote Dear Martin in 2015. Like, years ago. So the fact that it's still so timely says a lot about the country we live in and the society that we live in. Um, I'm looking forward to the day when it becomes historical fiction. Like, that will be a wondrous day, and I can't wait for it to happen. Um, But, you know, the, I have a real powerful inner dude, I think. Like, I, I spent a lot of my youth with a group of, of black dudes. Like, I was like the one girl in my, in my, friend group um which is part of the reason I'm like so into like makeup and stuff because they were always so gross and like (laughs) I'm like can you go take a shower please um and so it's been interesting so in my what's what's interesting is in my second book the first perspective so the second book is written in three chunks and it's three different perspectives and the first perspective is a boy and he has these two male friends like they're these jocks and I'm like, this is my life. Like, this mm-hmm. is who I grew up with. This is who I spent most of my time around when I was younger. And I did, when, when, in my research process, I do a lot of interviewing. So I had a lot of contact with, um, with young men who are living this experience. And what's funny, to, it's not funny, but it's like interesting to me, is that like, nothing's really changed. It's like just the video games are different than they were. Like they're it's the same game type. It's just mm-hmm. a different system, like that kind of thing. Um, where you know we were playing um, Grand Theft Auto. Now they're doing like Fortnite and all of it's the same thing though. You know, like yeah. it's all the same pursuit of something heroic. And the, like the 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 heart, the adolescent male heart has not changed. And I think that because of that. As long as you're able to tap into that and, you know, you do the work of making sure that the people you are writing for actually read your work mm-hmm. and make sure that it resonates with them. Timelessness is like a thing that's, you know, pretty, it's not easy to capture, but I think it's, 
not as hard as one would think. Understood. Yeah. Now, can we dive into the book? You guys are ready to dive into the book? Yes. All right, so let's dive into some, uh, by the, let's do crowd participation. Yeah, let me get ready. Y'all ready? ready. Uh, just no show of hands. We're not in school. Believe me, I'm in that setting all day. Just anybody willing to throw out the name of one of your characters, of one of your favorite characters or someone that was relatable in the book? I saw a hand back there. Manny. Manny. Can you speak on Manny? Emmanuel Julian Rivers. What do you want me to say about him? <laughs> like he, he's loosely based on the guy I went to high school with named Sean. Um, I'm not going to throw shade at Sean yet. I will at some point. But Sean was a guy when he, like for instance, he was the only black kid in his entire fifth grade class. Like I'm talking across teachers. And only black kid in his neighborhood growing up. Um, and he was he was constantly surrounded by white boys, and I'm talking white boys like Jared and Blake, and that whole little crew of bros. Yeah. Um, and so Sean moved through the world in a very particular way, and he was a guy who he just kind of put up with the racist jokes, and he was absolutely terrified of girls like me, um, despite the fact that I was like I got called an Oreo just as often as he did. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we had similar experiences like I grew up around more black people than he did but like classroom wise I was always the only black kid in my classes I went to a I think my high school when I was there was probably 70% white so it's not like we didn't have people of color in the school it's just that they weren't in the classes that I was in um but Sean was so scared of black girls like terrified um so Manny was loosely based on him and his experiences and there's something about being acceptable to the people who have the power that makes a person take more than they need to, put up with more than they need to. Uh, and so Manny was pretty, pretty tightly based on him. Now I'm gonna throw some shade at him because I asked him to prom junior year. And like, I was cute, you know. <laughs> I've gotten cuter, I will say. Like, thank God I did not peak in high school. Um, but I asked him to prom junior year and he, he told me no because he was going with this blonde girl named Sierra. SJ. Whatever. Oh no, she wasn't even close to being as cool as SJ. <laughs> um, so, but then once we hit college, I think I was like 19, 19 or 20, I get this DM on MySpace. Oh. That tells y'all how old I am, first of all. Uh, but I get this message on MySpace. Like, no, I don't think it's, I think MySpace is very much obsolete now. But he sends me this message just like, yo, yo, I really messed up at high school. Yo, can we like go out? And I was like, no, what do you mean? Get out of here. And then a couple of years ago, I get a, I get a DM on, on uh, Instagram from him talking about how if he could go back and do it all over. Oh, like Sean, I'm going to need you to let it go, bro. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. He did. Got it. I'm like, I'm glad that you have recognized the power of chocolate. Like, <laughs> go find you, you. Go it. find you some, sir. This, is not this, one, this right? not this one's taken. When I was reading it, I, I was like, Will Manny ever get it? Will it ever click for him? And it's like he was so indoctrinated with this, yeah. this, this problem of, of 
dragging or straggling across the color line. Mm-hmm. Right, and he had a place of you know uh, what is it the, the double consciousness yep. of a black body or white mind, and it was like, which is it's hard, man, powerful. And, and, and scary at the same it's time hard. because when does he know when which light bulb to click on at the right time? And I was just waiting for that and waiting for that in the court. It was like sometimes you thought he was about to get it yeah. and he still dropped the ball. Yep. Yeah. And it was like, so thank you for making that a, a, a character as well because I think we often deal with that. Yeah. And when we were selecting this book, I remember uh, someone, I'm not sure if it was in city schools or on the selection committee, they were like, do we pick this book, although it's based on private school setting? And I was like, no. I think that makes it even more powerful because it allows our young people to know despite, despite their place, their community, that the stories and the life experiences are all the same. And it now gives them a life experience of another young person. Because when Baltimore had the walkouts, with the young people, little people, little did they know is that the young kids from the private schools were discussing next steps and strategies of walking out to school the next day on Twitter yeah. at 12 o'clock at night when their parents were asleep, sliding in each other DMs. So the young people at the private schools were DMing the young people in our city schools, creating strategies through social Magic. media. And I'm like, Love they already it. talk to each other. Yes. What if we can get the ones that will never get have the access accessibility on the bus or to get to these communities to still be able to speak with each other? Yep. And fact check, did you know that that school actually exists? I didn't. So wait, oh, this is a great story. So I, um, I thought I was making brass prep up. I was like, let me get as ridiculous as I can. Let me make this a high school. So it's ninth through 12th grade only. I'm like, okay, we're going to make it cost $60,000 a year. It's going to be like eight black people in a population of 400. Ain't no way this is real. I'm just going to stretch it out as far as I can. And in January, I get invited to the Williston School of Northampton. (laughs) This is up in Massachusetts. It was cold, it was snowy, and I was like, why am I here, it's so cold. But this school, $60,000 a year, 9th through 12th grade, they had, they had 25 African-American students in a student body of 500, and 12 of them graduated last year. And I got there and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in the twilight zone, what is happening? <laughs> um, but these schools absolutely exist. And I got to interact, so I had dinner, I had dinner with 12 of these black students. Um, and I think I was either 12 or 13 of these black students at this school. Mm-hmm. And to watch them at this table all just exhale for a minute was nothing short of amazing. Like, I started college at Georgia Tech. Great school. Mm-hmm. It was not the place for your girl. It just wasn't the place for me. Um, I remember being in my first auditorium classroom. It was Calc 2. And uh, I was one of like two or three, maybe, brown and, well, brown as in like African-American faces in the auditorium of like 250 or so students. And I just, I just felt like, I've said it in six, like I've said, I've used the metaphor before where I felt like a, a speck of pepper on a sea of fettuccine Alfredo. Like it was just this very pale space um, 
and then there's me just sitting in the middle looking shell-shocked. And I wound up transferring to Spelman. Um, uh, because, and it's interesting because my mom went to Spelman. My auntie went to Spelman. I had legacy in the family, but I was like, I'm not going to do what y'all You're getting all type of points. HBC right across the street. Yes, right? It was the best decision I ever made, though, because there's something so relieving about being in a space where you are not constantly aware, even subconsciously, of the fact that people around you are looking at you and wondering if you have the qualifications to be in the space that you're occupying. Um, that was really uncomfortable at Georgia Tech. And I like wound up, I like slipped into a depression. I had this like two week um, really intense depressive episode um, after my first semester there. And that's when I realized like, oh no, I gotta do something different. Uh, so knowing that spaces like Brass Prep exist, like, it drives me to continue writing because I want to make sure that these kids whose parents make them go to these spaces and occupy these spaces, uh, I want to make sure that they are seeing themselves in some way. Like, if you're not seeing yourself on campus, you need to be seeing yourself in literature. Understood. What? Let's... Before I ask this next question, let's ask some more some more people from the audience. You mind throwing out another character? Let's play the character game. Go ahead, I see you. Jared. Jared. Oh, don't get me started. I still have like I have a personal Jared. His name is Daniel. And listen, but like he's my boo. You know, like the only reason I'm a, I'm not gonna cuss because I'm tempted to. But the only reason I keep this sir around this. He's not a young man. He's like 34. The only reason I keep him around is because we've been friends since we were 11. And, but he's so obtuse about it. And, but I will also say, I cuss him out all the time. Like we have these very intense conversations where I'm like, you're being an idiot. You're being, you're not even paying attention. I need you to look at these statistics. Like, and we will have this back and forth. The good thing about Dan is that he is open to actually hearing what I have to say. Does it change? It has definitely affected the way he sees the world. Does it change the way he moves? Not necessarily, because honestly, it doesn't have to. Um, but the Jareds of the world, they're everywhere. I remember hearing these radio interviews, um, not hearing, doing these radio interviews, and there were a couple where I got questioned about Jared. He just had to have been so difficult to write. And I was like, bro, Jared was the easiest character in this book to write. <laughs> there are so many Jareds running around everywhere, polluting the earth with their idiocy. Like, <laughs> it's fine. I like how you took that. It was like... Justice. Yeah, justice. Yeah. I could not understand that. Can you say more about what the, I like you, but I'm not going to act like I like you, uh -huh. and I might kiss you, but then I'm going to just completely ignore you. Like, did you date in high school? Did you date in like, <laughs> like, I'm just saying, like, teenage boys, they, they be tripping. Like, they just like, bro, are you, do you like me or not? Because you bugging, first of all. Um, but no, so, so the Justice SJ thing, a lot of that false start had to do with Justice's mother's 
perspectives mm-hmm. yeah. and him not wanting to go against his mother. Um, and I, I really felt it important to touch on that dynamic, um, largely because his mother represents mine, you know, my mother. And it's funny because my mama don't even look black. Like if you look at my, most people think my mama is a Latina. She's, she's very light skinned. She's got long black hair. Um, like you look at her and you're like, where are you from? Uh, which is a microaggression, so don't do it. Uh, but that's that's what you see when you look at my mother. But she would have lost her mind if my brother had brought home a white girl. And and when I get to talk about this in school settings, I tell kids to think about history. Like there are things in this book, if it bothers you, do some research on it because there's a good chance that there's something in history that this is linked to that you need to know about. So with this particular conversation, when I tell them like, you know, there still to this day are a lot of black mothers who are not okay with their sons bringing home white girls. That's completely rooted in the fact that, you know, when these mothers were children, if their, if their brother would have brought home a white girl, their brother could have lost his life, you know? The history of this country when it comes to interracial dating is not only fraught, it's just nasty, you know? Like, Loving versus Virginia happened in what, the 50 years ago, right? 1968. So you have, you know, before that, it was illegal in most states for people of different races to, no, I'm going to take that back. It was illegal for white people to marry anybody who wasn't white. So I like putting stuff in books that provokes emotion and hopefully when that emotion is provoked, you're provoked to actually go do a little research behind it. Um, yeah, so that's why they, they was tripping up a little bit. Got it. So you you definitely scratched out the question that I had. It was literally the same one, but when you couldn't yep, that's exactly it. Um, I'm going to get back to other, other audience participation and then give you all time to start asking questions directly yourselves, all right? I just want to um, ask you a few more questions. Mm-hmm. Can you speak on the importance of justice finding an expressive outlet? during a time of turmoil and time of conflict and trauma. And why did he pick specifically Martin Luther King? So, okay, so first I'll tell you... The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, So what I will first say is Justice's decision to write these letters came from me dealing with my own trauma when I was in in therapy in my early... When I was in therapy in my early 20s, um, I was taught to use a journal to work through a lot of the stuff that I dealt with and to write letters. So I remember there was this one period where everybody I had a grudge against, I was supposed to write them a letter and burn it. So I had to get all of the nasty out. So now I literally have a formula that I work, that I work through with some of my mentees when they're dealing with trauma, when they have kind of unforgiveness festering inside of them where you sit down and you write a letter where you, you name the offense, you name how it made you feel, and then you let the person off the hook. Um, so I wanted justice to have a similar thing. He writes to Dr. King, excuse me, largely because after the death of Mike Brown, the Black Lives Matter movement kicked off. Like the hashtag was birthed when uh, George Zimmerman was acquitted. The movement kicked off, um, right after the death of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. And I kept seeing people quote Dr. King in opposition to the movement. I was like, where do they do that at? Yeah. What you mean Dr. King would be opposed to people marching and protesting? What, what Dr. King are we talking about here? 
So when I heard the, and honestly, the straw that kind of like pushed me over the edge is he was hearing the mayor of Atlanta, bro. This is Dr. King City. I could go to his house and you up here on TV talking about some, all I ask is that you don't take the freeways. Dr. King would never take a freeway. Bro, hold up. Let me, let me send you a copy of Selma in the mail. Because clearly, you, he took a lot of freeways. Like, let's use Google. Dr. King takes freeway. Y'all tell me how many hits you get, right? So that's why he writes to Dr. King, because it's like the further we get from the civil rights movement, the more it seems like people want to smooth the edges of Dr. King's teachings, and they want to make him this docile man who was, you know, oh, he was pro-nonviolence. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. But, like, in remembering the civil, don't forget the disobedience. Like, there's, it's important that we really take in his whole thing, right? So that's where, yeah, that's where the Dr. King piece came in. Got it. Um, two more points. Um, the relationship and the sternness and the affection of his mother, hmm. of telling him, it was, um, it reminded me of mother to son, mm-hmm. Langston Hughes. Was that intentional? And I think I, my mom's here. She's right there. And then I go through my, she's the one holding my, my newborn baby. Um, I got to hold the baby to say no. Okay. <laughs> Yes. All right. My girl, I guess my girlfriend will approve of that. Yeah. But it reminded me of, of Mother to Son by Langston Hughes. And when he said, boy, don't you keep a turning. You keep a moving. Yep. And, I, and when you had that dialogue, I was like, wow. Because the mother could have been passive, could have been a, time of, a place of affection, but she was his strength and his backbone. Mm-hmm. Can you speak on that? I've never met a black mother of sons who is passive. Never. Um, I think that the moment, the moment you are a black woman and you, a, a boy comes out of your body, however he comes out, um, there is steel that forms in his place. Uh, and I, I think that we know what our sons are going to go through the minute they come into this earth. Even if you have never seen it. Like, I feel like a black woman could grow up in an all-white environment, but the minute she has a black son, she knows it's on and popping. Um, and I think that that is something that we know. Oh, oh, so fresh. I can't even wait. You know, don't you? You, you just had a baby. Like, you know, it, it's in there. It's, it's in there. And I think... I think it's fascinating. Um, We are not, we don't have the liberty of coddling our little boys. Not if we want them to survive a world that is often against them. Um, So my boys every day have to say, mommy, I can do anything. Mommy, I can do anything. Okay, now go clean your room. Like, <laughs> give me a hug and a kiss. Tell me you can do anything, and then go clean up because we're not we're not doing that, you know. Like that, but there is. It's such a beautiful thing to me too that that there's this ability to balance firmness with tenderness. Um, we magic. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I agree. Do you all agree? Yeah. Yes. All right. All right. Speak of another relationship of. His teacher, the educator's role, and and being that that strong male figure and trying to get him to to be forward thinking and allowing him to be vulnerable but tough and also challenging him to to get past the present moment. Mm -hmm. 
how was that in writing this? And, and was there any inspiration or, or any things that you may have seen in your life as a lived example of this? Mm, the book is dedicated to a man named Casey Weeks. Mm-hmm. He was my English teacher, ninth and 10th grade. And he's this white man, like white as snow, uh, and, and a soul bone in his body. But he got it, and he saw me. Um, I was the only black kid in his class, but he, he didn't try to ignore that. And I think that having the teacher who was willing to engage you where you are, because that's really what makes Doc Doc, is that he is willing to engage these kids where they are without judgment. And I want you to hash out the things that you're thinking and feeling, and I want you to have this space where we can talk about anything. Um, that, that's what I got from Mr. Weeks. And that's honestly, I think it's like the best possible educator you can be is one who figures out how to give kids space to exist within like the rule parameters. Cause I know there are parameters that teachers have to kind of exist within to keep their jobs. So when you're able to do both, I think it's amazing. Awesome. Thank you. Time to open it up for you all. You guys ready? We're going to pass the mic around. Let's be very uh, short, concise, without words. To be mindful of everyone's uh, willingness Look, to let participate. Let me be concise. And <laughs> to get as many questions as we can possibly ask in our remaining time. If we start, Miss Taylor, if we start to go over... Just Tracy give us the sick Tracy. Just get start to give us the sick. Well, we also want to have time for folks to get their books signed. Oh yes. To get books too. Yeah, and to enjoy the uh, light refreshments upstairs too. Wow. Oh, we about to outside. eat, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> we have one right here. I don't and need that. Have... I don't need that. I don't need that. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Oh, she wanna so the crowd can hear too. I have a question. Yes. Now, at the beginning of the book when he's describing like where he goes to school and how he feels and how he feels that he has to like preserve this duality like mm-hmm. he has to be one way with Manny, one way with SJ, one way in front of that like how did you address that cold switching in men being as though you're a woman? Does that question make sense? I mean I like, like- code switching is code switching you know <laughs> like you I got a code switch Rashad got a code switch like like I'm talking to you guys I sound so articulate right yeah like y'all are like oh she talks so good if y'all were to see me with my friends at home you would have no idea what I'm saying like there's just a whole different dialect like I'm from Atlanta so we talk a very specific way mm-hmm. I would be like shot it you? and you guys would be like what is she saying what is she saying I don't know what's happening um but I think that code switching is universal like it's it's you it's, it's actually it's and, and it's a good thing because it means that you know how to communicate how you doing? My name Hi. is Ariel. Um, I'm a librarian here at Baltimore. About I hail from Georgia, so it's real it. good to hear that you're a fellow Georgia girl. Um, so I just have two questions. The first one: um, so James Baldwin talks about um, to be black is to be in a state of, of constant <clears throat> rage, right? I love that. Um, in the ending of your book, you introduce a resolve to that rage mm-hmm. at Manny's gravesite. Could you tell a little bit about why you introduced that and um, just the process of of introducing a space of forgiveness yeah. um, for both parties. Yeah. Uh, 
And the last question is kind of it's kind of chill. But did you mean for the for the initials of Dear Martin to be DM or as a nod to social media? Just, just <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I really, the second question, nah. Like, there's a whole bunch of stuff in the book that people are like, oh, SJ, is that social justice? And I was like, well, no, but yes. <laughs> um, so to answer your first question, um, as a book written with Dr. King in mind, it was important to me that there be some kind of reconciliation just to honor his legacy and to honor um, to honor what he stood for. And I do feel like it was pretty well earned. Um, I do think forgiveness is one of the most important skills that we can learn because forgiveness is a skill. Like it's a decision to let somebody off the hook whether they apologize or not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think of unforgiveness as this, this poison that you swallow hoping somebody else will die. I read that somewhere. <laughs> And it's like, you you want somebody to pay for something that they did, and they going on about their life. You know, like, I, ain't, I don't care, you know? Uh, so I felt it important that Justice exercise this forgiveness more for himself than anything. Um, I wanted to know, um, what is Mila's story? Listen, so my one regret with this book is that I didn't, so the book, we ended up cutting the book in half. Um, and a lot of Mello's backstory we pulled because there were parts of it that kind of detracted from Justice's overall story. Um, but if there's one thing I wish I could go back and do is to give her more meat. Um, what I will say is that there's a chance I will be allowed to give her more meat in a different medium. You guys use your deductive reasoning. Um, we will see how this goes. I have uh, created a different form of Dear Martin that gives Mello a lot more meat and weight. And I think it's important that she gets another chance to be seen as her full self. Smiles and doesn't violate non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> um, I just had this question. Why did you kill off Manny in the book? I mean, spoiler alert. Um, America is the short answer there. Uh, that, that scene is based on the incident with Jordan Davis in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and every, every death mentioned in that book, it harkens to something that's actually happened. And I did that on purpose because I wanted to be able to be like, when people are like, this book isn't realistic. I'd be like, have you seen this new story? Yeah, that's what this is. Have you seen this new story? That's what this is. Uh, so that is what that was. Interestingly enough, in the first draft, I killed Justice on, like, page three. Um, and Phoebe was like, girl, bye. Um, and so we rewrote it, like, totally. If you could change anything in the book, what would it be? So, besides giving Mello more meat and more backstory, um, in the original draft, Justice had a sister. And I took her out. Well, I took her out because, like, like, there were things about her that, that detracted from his central story. But in taking her out, I took myself out. There are no black girls in this book at all. Besides Mello, Mello's biracial. But there are no brown girls at all in this book. Like, Justice's mother is there. Manny's mother is there. So you have black women represented. 
but no black girls. So if I could go back and do something different, I would keep the sister in in a meaningful way. But I'm about to remedy that because I'm doing a sequel. Um, it'll be out in October 2020. That one's called Dear Justice. And it is written from the perspective of Quan. Quan will be writing letters from jail to justice. So we're going to see kind of the flip side of the black boy coin. Um, where you have the high-achieving black boy doing everything right, we're going to examine the life of a black boy who has made some decisions that have landed him in a position he doesn't really want to be in. Um, so I am not excited about writing it, but I'm excited about it existing. Awesome. Do we have more questions? Oh, we have another one. And then I'll move over. Okay. Um, do you think um, justice is anything like Courtney in any way? <coughs> Um, not really. I mean, they're both, they're both black boys who love girls. But other than that, uh, so Courtney is the boy protagonist in Odd One Out. And uh, he and Justice are very different beings. Uh, Courtney is like a jock. And he's in love with the girl next door who is a lesbian and is like ill. Um, and... You guys should read that one too. Just saying. <laughs> Shameless plug. Shameless plug. But yeah, that he's they're very different black boys. But that's important, right? To have these different experiences on the page because like there's no such thing as one black boy story. Mm-hmm. We have a few more questions. Uh, what do you want people to walk away with from reading Dear Justice? Dear Justice, Dear Martin. I meant Dear Martin. I mean, um, all of them. Dear Justice, Dear Martin, Odd One Out. Anything I write, at the end of the day, the message is no matter what anybody thinks of you or says about you or no matter how anybody perceives you, it's up to you to decide what you believe about yourself, who you're going to be, and what you're going to do in the world. Um, And that actually came from James Baldwin. I'm going to get that sweatshirt. Yeah. Rashad's Fletcher is just popping. Um, but James Baldwin in The Fire Next Time in the intro, he's writing this letter to his nephew and he's like, okay, they call you the N-word, but so what? Why do you believe them? Kind oh my of gosh, that's one of my favorite quotes. Oh my God, it's the best. I just said it at like Dunbar. High it is the like best, right? Like you get to decide what you believe about yourself. And that really is, honestly, spoiler alert, the message in all of my books. Mm-hmm. Choose Martin for the letters. Because of what I said about um, about people quoting him in opposition to a nonviolent protest movement, mm-hmm. and this idea that like if he were alive today, he would act and think differently than the activists that we're seeing um, making some strides and doing some major work. Um, I just think that his message has gotten too watered down, so I decided to write a book where you have a kid exploring the stuff that he talked about and applying it in the way that, you know, that he has interpreted based on other people's way of seeing Dr. King. And it not working. Like, it was important to me that the way he applied it didn't work because it's not the right way for it to be applied. Dang it. Okay, we have five more minutes, so I want to make sure we get you, you, and probably Oops. one more before we wrap up. All right, let's see. Okay, so, like, I had a question. So, like, I know this book is directed to, like, black people like they can relate to it but like I say I don't want to be offensive but I see like a couple Caucasian people so like how do you think they would like react to the book or like 
Response. That's a great question. Um, so my target audience for this was definitely, um, honestly, my target audience for this was everybody. And I say that because I deliberately wrote chunks of the book in a way that, like, for instance, the dialogue sections in the book where they're in the classroom and they're having these discussions and you see a character's name, a colon, and what the character says. I wrote it that way so that anybody reading could find themselves in that classroom. Um, because I wanted it to be a book that black kids could relate to, but also a book that would give white kids an opportunity to kind of enter into a different experience. Um, part of the reason SJ in this book is a white girl is because as human beings, we just find it easier to identify and to listen, or to listen to the people that we're able to identify with. Um, so when I get the messages from these white kids uh, I'll get emails and DMs from them that are like, oh my gosh, man, SJ, I want to be just like SJ. Like everything she said, it just really resonated. If SJ had been a black girl, I wouldn't get those messages. I know for a fact. So like there's something about seeing yourself and hearing a perspective that comes from that self that looks like you that helps people enter into other people's experiences. So I'm glad that everybody's like super into it though. Like I'll take it. We had the gentleman right here at the front. One more before we get to you. Right. Yes. I uh, look forward to reading your book. Thank um, you. In our book club, we just uh, did the Hate You Give. Uh -huh. And I don't know whether you're familiar with it and what you thought about it. I'd be interested. So Angie is like one of my best friends. So everything I say is biased. Um, love that book. I love the movie, and I love the fact that you can hold them up together, and you basically get two tellings of a very similar story. Um, you see the difference in perspective, so the hate you get is, of course, from a girl's perspective, so you see how a girl is interacting with these things. In Dear Martin, you see how a boy is interacting with these things, and how how it affects them differently. Um, and, you know, there are a couple of other books that have come out recently. Some that have came out before, like All American Boys by Jason Reynolds and Brendan Kiley is amazing, you know? Um, How It Went Down by Kekla Magoon. Uh, that story is written, there's one, there's an incident, and the story is told from the perspective of like 20 different people who are telling their version of the incident. So that one gives you a, gives you insight into how different people look at situations differently. Um, there's one that came out, Tyler Johnson was here as one, Anger is a Gift is one. So there's a lot of these books coming out now that I think everybody should read every single one of them because it's important to look at this particular issue from as many angles as possible. But I love The Hate You Give. Also, On the Come Up is freaking amazing. And I'm like really mad at her because I'm like, how did you do this twice? Like you just knocked it out of the park again. And now we got this female rapper who's out here doing the most. And pre-order that one too, guys. It's really great. I'm already on the way to that. It's so good. Yes. So besides Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and James Baldwin, mm -hmm. if you can write a letter to someone that's passed on, who would it be? Do they have to have passed on? Because the person I would write a letter to is Ruby Bridges, and she ain't passed on. Um, she's still alive. And I, I probably should write her a letter, but I'm like intimidated. Um, but to be a person, to put your young self in the kind of position that she put herself in, 
Because I guarantee you, she could have told her mama she didn't want to do it, and her mama would have let her not do it, you know? Um, I would love to write her a letter, because, like, without people like her, there's no way I would be sitting here. People, women, black women, who were willing to put themselves literally in the line of fire. Um, Like, her first day of school, everybody left. She was the only person in the building. You know, like, things like that. that. What must that have been like? To be willing to put yourself in a position where you are going to be completely isolated like I would love to hear about what made her what gave her that resolve especially at like six years old um, she's listen like Ruby I'm gonna hit you up bro let me slide into those DMs <laughs> though I don't think she's on social media which is unfortunate how were, how were you on top we could do one more one more it's one of the best What was your motivation to write this book? I wanted to create something that I could give to my sons at the point when people start following them around grocery stores. Um, Because it's going to happen. I am 33 years old, and I get followed around bookstores with my book on the damn shelf. (laughs) I kid you not. Um, I was in a bookstore earlier this year, and me and my best friend are sitting in the cookbook section, minding our own business. And, uh, and we were sitting there because there was no space at the tables or on the benches. And the manager comes around the corner. She tells us that we're blocking the aisle and have to move. There was no aisle, but okay. So we gathered, like we're gathering our things. This lady stands over us as we're gathering our things and then followed us around the store until we left. And like petty patty in me wanted to be like, yo, can we, you see that? I want to sign these. I wrote them but I, I didn't do that. Maybe I should have, yeah. you know? I think, honestly, I was so in shock that I was just like, is she, is she really following? Like, you think I'm gonna, I write books, bro. You think I'm gonna steal? Like, I'm gonna take money out somebody else's pocket when I want them, what you mean? But okay. So yeah, it's gonna happen where they are stopped for no reason, where they walk into a store in their private school uniform, and somebody follows them around because they think they're gonna steal something. Um, And I wanted to create an item that I could hand to them to just be like, yeah, this is gonna happen to you, but that's okay, you're still amazing. It ain't you, it's them. Wonderful, I think uh, that's a perfect way to wrap up the Q&A session, but we wanna be uh, mindful to allow everyone to get their possible books purchased or inside by the incredible Nick Stone. So let's give another round of applause. To Nick this podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.